And now, ladies and gentlemen, as the crowning jewel in this evening dedicated to achievement, I give you a lady who has enriched the motion picture industry from the day she became a part of it. A very great lady of the stage. Today, she is the great lady of films. It is a signal honor to the winner of the 21st award for the best motion picture of the year that the Oscar should be presented by Miss Ethel Barrymore. I'm deeply honored to present this award. I believe that the public, as well as the members of the Academy, realize what miraculous teamwork goes into the making of great motion pictures. The best picture encompasses the finest skills of every craft. The finished product, playing in thousands of theaters, hundreds of thousands of performances, gives millions of people the richest entertainment on earth. Each fine motion picture leaves an indelible mark upon the memories of those who see it. And in time, when the year 1948 is called to mind, among the important and nostalgic memories will be the film chosen here tonight. And the winner, Hamlet. Hamlet, the world's most famous play. Now brought to the screen with filmic mastery. The camera capturing the superb artistry of the finest actors of our time as they portray a story of a man's torment, his indecision, his love, his rage and his revenge as foul crimes are burnt and purged away. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 21st episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time, reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the lady who is dealing with snow in spring, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, doing a lot better than the Hamlet family. <laughs> this is very true and and on the other the lady who should be completing her cyber conversion very soon zan sprouse hey zan how are you today i'm just about ready to mark to uh merge mentally and physically with gus gorman's supercomputer fantastic well then i guess you know uh, you'll definitely it's be like, are our... we going superman route or are you going to be more like the gal in metropolis <laughs> no totally superman 3 route totally superman <laughs> yeah that's, that's i want to be way. able to for no for no reason shoot lasers out of my eyes and be able to be able to point to pamela stevenson and make her get stuck like 30 feet in the air that's what I want. <laughs> well, that seems like the right route to go. So, of course, as mentioned, we are reviewing Hamlet today, directed, produced, written, and starring Sir Laurence Olivier, who we met, of course, in Rebecca, based, of course, on the uber-famous play by the immortal bard himself, William Shakespeare. The original score was by William Walton, and on estimate, to put in today's money, ladies, this movie cost roughly $5 million to make and made $32 million in rentals and opened on May the 4th of 19. 48 and has a runtime of roughly two hours and 30 minutes. So starting with first impressions here, Rachel, first off, um, what were your impressions on this movie and what is your relationship with William Shakespeare? Most of my relationship with Shakespeare comes from high school English, uh, mm. although we did Romeo and Juliet because honestly, I think that's the easiest one to follow what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, it's pretty straightforward as far as plot is concerned. 
Um, I have I have not let it be any sort of you know secret that I don't like Shakespeare. Hmm. Um, I find the language extremely extremely difficult to follow. Uh, there is no point to speak that way. I don't care who you are. <laughs> it just comes off as extremely pretentious to me. Um, I find most of it pretty dull, this included. Um, mm. And, yeah, I I don't like Shakespeare in general. Um, mm. At least in its purest form. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there are modern adaptations, which we will get to. Uh, yes. We get to the 50s, thankfully. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this one, you know, I know Sir Lawrence Olivier, he's considered one of the greatest actors of all time. I loved him in Rebecca. This, not so much. <laughs> I thought maybe he could, he could save this for me. Sorry. Not Ouch. <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. And Zan, what about you? Uh, what were your thoughts on this? And uh, are you a fan of the Immortal Bard? I, I am a fan of the Immortal Bard. I studied Shakespeare in high school and then went on to college to be a theater major. Mm. Initially, I was, a, I was a music major, but then the school I went to, I went to the Ohio State University, and it was very unless you want to be a teacher or if you're in the marching band, you're kind of off to the side. So I sort of left that thinking maybe if I pursue something in journalism, I can maybe be a music writer, but I don't accept to major in music to do that. And then I remembered how much I love the theater. So I became a theater major for a little bit. And so I, you know, I, I have a, a, an affinity for Shakespeare, but in a different way than I think most people do. I when Chris and I first met and I went to Virginia to meet his parents, I made him take me to the folder. <laughs> and uh, I've been, you know, I've been to Stratford upon Avon and I've done a lot of the Shakespeare touristy things because I do like Shakespeare. But what I didn't go to the Globe when I was in London because the Globe isn't the Globe. It's a replica because the globe burned down. The original globe burned down. And right. I just thought, why am I going to spend 15 pounds going into a replica? I can, I'd, rather, I'd rather spend that on something else. So I, I do like Shakespeare, but I find it fascinating that Shakespeare is seen as this highfalutin, highest form of theater that you can have. Wow. You know, you have to be a PhD scholar to be able to read some original manuscripts with white gloves. But when you think about how Shakespeare was performed at the Globe with the commonest of the common people throwing rotten tomatoes at the actors they didn't like, I just love the concept of how pop culture, the, the basis of pop culture, given enough time, becomes the most elite academia that there is when it comes to theater and it's um yeah you know what is that tragedy plus time equals comedy what is that phrase it, yeah. shakespeare is a lot like that to me where it, it, you know give it give it enough time pretty much anything is going I, i'm just wondering if in 500 years from now we're going to be looking back on 
the Kardashians as a the bastion of culture. <laughs> so, okay, Oof, that's a thought. I, God, I hope not. I'm just glad. I'm if that happens, I'm glad I'll be dead by then. But yeah. I just um, showed it right there, Zan. Let, just I, let I know. <laughs> I just sent a shudder. I you felt a disturbance in the force. I know yes. you did. So I think that's very interesting about Shakespeare is that we have this concept that he is the highest of uh, of height when it comes to theater, but he wasn't that way when he was when he was writing, and. The thing is, though, all that being said, you know, there are so many things I love about Shakespeare, about his command of the language and the ability to help his actors by writing in meter so they can memorize more quickly. You know, that's where all the rhyming comes from. It's so it's, he's more easily memorized. At the same time, Hamlet's a tough one for me. Hamlet is a... It's, it's one of the most tragic of the tragedies that have ever been, not just Shakespeare, but it's one of the more tragic tragedy, you know, one of the more tragic tragedies in all of storytelling. But it's a tough one to enjoy because there's really nobody likable in this one. You know, the, I think the one that I probably, and we'll talk about this more later when we talk about the characters, the, you know, the ones I like the most are probably Laertes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hamlet's a little bitch. So <laughs> it's a it's an interesting one because it is you know one of the greatest tragedies. It's very well it's very well written with a great command of the language. I think it takes a little. It takes a long time to get where it's going. Mm-hmm. I will say that. But Hamlet is a little bitch, and it's hard to feel for him. You know, it's hard to mm-hmm. you know you know you're reading things about this. You know, Hamlet, the hero of the play. I'm like bullshit. <laughs> Hamlet's the <laughs> hero. So it's, I have I have a weird relationship with Hamlet, the character, which makes my feelings about Hamlet, the play, a little bit on the problematic side. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, I think, yeah, it's just really he just really, really, really wanted to play Hamlet. So he made this movie for himself and he was able to do Hamlet, even though, honestly, I think he was a little too old to be playing Hamlet, frankly. I think so, too. And in fact, no surprise, the guy does literally everything in this film because he's like directing, producing, writing it. Because I guess he's like the the guy. I bet he catered it, too. You know, he probably just made sandwiches for everybody. (laughs) He's like, hey, I I paid for this, so I'm going to be the lead. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of his his little he threw his own little party. But yeah, here's the curious thing. I mean, as soon as I started watching this film, I don't know about the two of you, but I couldn't stop thinking of another film which features a clip from this movie which is last action hero starring arnold schwarzenegger which i believe it there is actually a moment in that film where uh, the the kid protagonist is watching this version of hamlet in school and he suddenly imagines uh, what hamlet would be like if schwarzenegger were hamlet and so oh, i would watch that in a second <laughs> it is so cool you can actually find uh, some you know the kind of clips on on youtube and i might actually share them in the comments as well but it just shows kind of the moment where hamlet is musing over about killing claudius while claudius is in prayer and the kid is like what are you doing just kill him already you know so um so you get that little moment and it made me think of that also you know what what is crazy about this film i found is we have tons of great actors who don't get to show their acting chops, i.e. we have Sir Christopher Lee in this, who's a guard and does nothing. He doesn't have a speaking part. And we have the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, in this as well, who's the player king. And he, you know, 
obviously you have to kind of really stare and realize that it's Patrick Troughton. I mean, he's very young at that point, but I'm like, we have the second doctor. He's an amazing acting. You give it a, a non-speaking part. I felt so bad knowing and how. Don't good- forget about, don't forget about Q and uh, John Steed as uncredited extras. Yes, it's crazy. It's like Laurence Olivier like invited these people over, and maybe as I said, they were very they were very young and starting out. But you think the potential of the kind of the kind of acting force you had on this, mm-hmm. who didn't get to talk, but but you know, other than that, it was it was neat to have these kind of extras in, if you will. So let's look at our characters on the board here, starting with our titular character, Sir Laurence Olivier, of course, as the Prince of Denmark himself. Hamlet. So, Zan, you kind of you know, gave your thoughts a little bit on this character, but looking at him a little bit more closely, what were your thoughts on, on Hamlet and, uh, I guess, the portrayal of Laurence Olivier? Olivier did a fantastic job, as usual, because he's Olivier. Uh, again, I feel like he's a little bit old. You're supposed to believe that he's in school. <laughs> like, really, Olivier, for doing this? He's All like right. 40 and the gal playing his mother's like in her 20s. <laughs> I know. It's like, I don't care how much you bleach your hair. It's not, no, I'm not buying this. (laughs) So, uh, like I I said before, the problem with Hamlet is that Hamlet's a little bitch. Um, (laughs) You know, we start out with Hamlet just being, you know, this moody, essentially a moody teenager who's not getting over the death of his father Mm -hmm. in any sort of productive way. Now, I'm not here to say that, you know, grief is a one-size-fits-all thing. And he's right. It has only been like two months since his father died, but he's he's really not putting his his energy towards the right things, and he's he's being mean to everybody else because of it. He's he's sort of typical teenager, just kind of taking it out on everybody else who doesn't need to you know to, to deal with it. So, and then we do find, after the guards see Hamlet's father come back, that his father was in fact murdered. So now he's got a release for his grief and anger. He's got a place for that energy, which is revenge, which, you know, people talk a lot about the Count of Monte Cristo being the ultimate story as to how revenge is your downfall. Hamlet's almost better at telling you that story. Or giving you that lesson. So, you know, Hamlet finds out his father is dead. And he's, like, really kind of nasty to his mom about it. Like, you know, like it's her fault that she, that he was, I mean, I think he, it's like he almost thinks she was complicit because she did marry the guy. Even though she didn't necessarily know that Claudius was the guy that killed her husband. And I just want to say, this is like 14, 1500s Denmark. Like, what kind of choices does she have career-wise after she's a widow? I mean, there's not a lot more out there for her. Mm. So I'm going to make her queen, so... Heck no! Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I do kind of feel for Gertrude in this because she's probably fallen, you know... And and there's there's an interesting thing about the Gertrude character that is done in this version that I'll talk about later with her, but the Gertrude character always struck me as kind of oblivious and she just got duped by claudius i think because i get the feeling that it was like you know oh this is uh yes my brother he's he's dead and you poor thing come to my house and we'll talk about it with candles and wine and (laughs) 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 he got really kind of i always felt like she got kind of duped by him (laughs) 
And so the fact that his mother got married again so fast really upsets Hamlet. And then he's just kind of a little, little bratty, little moody jerk about it. He's not necessarily, he's not necessarily nice to his friends. And he's, and the, the reason I really, really, really can't stand Hamlet is because he is horrible to Ophelia. He's mm-hmm. really terrible to her. You know, you know, one in one act, we have Gethy to a nunnery and then she's dead. And he's like, Oh, I loved her. It's like, shut up. You were terrible. <laughs> you were terrible to her. You don't deserve to even talk at her funeral. Let alone, you know? And the fact that, you know, Laertes forgives him so quickly is just, I, I don't get, I don't get why Hamlet, everybody loves him so much. Everybody loves him and just sort of bows to him and does whatever, you know, he's that friend that's a real, he's like the, He's like the Sheldon Cooper of everybody he knows. Like they put up with so much crap for so little return. You know, he's not nice to anybody. You know, the queen is thinking, oh yeah, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll get to marry Ophelia. And, <laughs> and no, that's not going to happen. You know, not, not only is he not nice to her, her father is like, yeah, no, we are nipping this right in the bud. You know, he's, he's really, you know, Polonius is really the only one that can see through Hamlet's crap. And see that underneath it, he's just no damn good. So he's like, yeah, honey, no, I really don't want you hanging around with this Hamlet guy. He's not, <laughs> you're too good for this. He's not what you need. So I know he's written you these stupid love letters. But uh, no, you don't, you don't get to go out with him. And, you know, as much as I don't like parents interfering in their children's lives, Polonius knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And just Hamlet with his whole drama about everything like what is the deal with him putting on that play like oh hey check it out i have this play everybody watch it look my my uncle killed my father i mean and there's some more stuff in this in this play that we don't see in this movie Mm. about claudius trying to get hamlet killed (laughs) um so there's a little more to it than that but even even with you know even when you have that in this play hamlet is a real Hamlet's a real pain in the neck. I mean, I can't, he's, he's even as a son, when he goes to confront his mother in her bedroom and, you know, where he winds up killing Polonius through the curtains, mm. he's Hamlet. I, I don't think this is a problem with, um, oh, with, with, with Olivier's performance, but I think this is Hamlet where, you know, he's killed Polonius and he's just sort of like, you know, Oh, well, he was probably in on it too. Sorry, Ma. He's, out. He's, <laughs> he's just not, he's just not a good guy. Hamlet's just not a good guy. So it makes, like I said, it makes this play difficult for me. Olivia does a good job of portraying his sullen, moody, overly dramatic, obsessive revenge personality. But none of the words I just said are positive traits in a person. So <laughs> Hamlet's, a, Hamlet's a tough one to like. So, it, you know, because of that, you wind up sort of feeling more for the people around Hamlet than you do feel for Hamlet. 
this is very true and you know you do make a good point possibly also about gertrude because he you know kind of yells at her or rather is the whole frailty thy name is woman and and all this kind of thing but yeah i guess one of the traits of course in shakespeare is also kind of having that kind of almost evil man who's able to seduce these rather you know innocent women into stuff because case in point made me think of another king richard the third who does the same thing to you know his uh, you know another wife while she, another woman while she's mourning over her husband's grave he's able to actually seduce her there so he actually goes takes it a step further than claudius and does even worse than claudius but yeah right like, but richard the third is at least like he's the guy you love to hate you know yeah. he's like a he's more like one of those jamie lannister types where like oh he is horrible when are we going to see more of him yeah where as hamlet you're just like you know go 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 back to school and shut up <laughs> and on and on that that comment, Rachel, what were your thoughts on Hamlet? Yeah, he's uh he's not a likable person at all. I I I don't know about last afternoon or whatever, but the I, the entire time watching this, I'm like, can I just watch that other loose Hamlet adaptation, The Lion King? <laughs> <laughs> right, please. Uh, just because, yeah, this this family puts the dis and dysfunction. Um, I mean, I mean, in some cases, I understand where Hamlet's coming from. Like his dad's been dead for like a month or two, and his mom goes and remarries, which that in itself could seem like a slap in the the face that she seemingly moved on so quick. But she married his father's brother, mm-hmm. keeping it in the family, which, again, with royalty, you know, that's the way they like it. Uh, <laughs> you're not just going to marry anybody. Um, but the fact that she seemingly moved on and just seemed so happy being married to this new guy when her husband has probably barely... I don't know how tan his skin was. So who knows how much water he absorbed according to the grave digger. Um, (laughs) He's probably absorbed at least a little bit of water, but probably not a whole lot yet. Um, And, and the, 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 everyone else in like the court and everything is, you know, seemingly partying and, you know, having a jolly old time and meanwhile Hamlet's over here, you know, still going through the grieving process and nobody seems to give a crap that he's hurting. You know, he was the king's son and invariably probably heir to the throne eventually. I don't know why he wasn't made king. Um, I don't know what the, the issue is there. Um there's so much that's not explained. <laughs> it's it's one thing to try to make sense of the flowerly language, and I can get the gist of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But there's so many choices that people make in this story that I just uh, granted, I know a lot was cut yes. from the actual play. The actual play is like five parts or something. Mm-hmm. Um and ends up being like four hours long if you were to do the entire thing. Um, and if you want to watch that, Kenneth Branagh can accommodate exactly. you. He did an exact adaptation. Um, but uh, 
but still it's like i don't understand like you know hamlet gets told by you know his 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 friend um you know in these these centuries that you know, hey, we've been out the last couple nights, and your the ghost of your dad keeps popping up, but he's not speaking to us. Uh, do you want to come hang out and see if he'll speak to you? And that's exactly what happens. And he speaks to his his father's ghost, and his first thought is, "Well, I spoke to my dead dad, but I'm not sure if I could trust my dad dad in, in his claim that he was murdered." Not that I was speaking to a ghost. It's just, can I trust this ghost? Right. And what it says is true. I know. I'll act like I'm crazy. <laughs> and that'll that'll show my uncle. Like, how? What? I don't understand <laughs> why him acting crazy has anything to do with getting his uncle to confess to killing his father. Like, how are these things connected? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, and his his seemingly relationship with his mother, which I know was a, a choice that Olivier did where he keeps bemoaning about how his mom marrying his uncle is incestuous. No, let's talk about the kisses between you and your mother. Yes. For real. Oh my god. <laughs> They're like almost like making out at one point. I'm like, seriously. Yeah, like that is incestuous. Not your mother marrying your uncle. <laughs> At least she didn't marry like her own brother. You know, it's like she didn't marry a blood relative or something. She just happened to marry the next guy. Uh, yeah, and then his his treatment of uh, of uh, Ophelia is just. It, but she just she's just getting it from all sorts of sides. Like the two like main women in this movie are just treated like shit. But we'll get to them. Uh, but Hamlet Hamlet is definitely uh, guilty of of that. Um, and he's just you know if he had just taken what he had known, what he'd you know the the story that you know dead daddy had told him, and maybe found some way to trick his uncle into confessing while people were hiding behind some tapestries so that there would be witnesses or something. He doesn't stab. <laughs> exactly. And then it could have been like, ha ha, you know, you, you therefore have no proper right to the throne. Let's throw you in the dungeons or something or exile you to Egypt. I don't know. Um, and Ophelia, you know, I like you, but uh, this thing will work out. And I know your dad doesn't want this to work out, so let's just move on. Let's just be friends. You know, so many choices he made. If he had made different choices, there would be a lot lower body count by the end of this story. This the is body very, count very is really, really high. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> it it is. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, uh, I have to say, though, you know, um, this this Hamlet, I think, really does, though, he doesn't definitely embrace 
that morose and lugubrious side of the characters. Of course, like you guys were both pointing out, he's mourning his father Hamlet Senior's death and he's just shocked at how his mother could so quickly and speedily hop into bed with her husband's brother. And I suppose also the whole frailty thy name is woman may have unfortunately probably rung true for audiences at the time, as in not so many words, he's calling his mother easy, which you know, it was probably a little bit shocking for the time, but also you think maybe the role of women in the late 40s did not, you were not yet emancipated, maybe recognized and stuff. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course, it's always the woman's fault. It's never the guy's fault. So um, maybe there is still that mentality. So maybe folks could relate to that, which is awful. But he also, and he very much seems to have any friends at all, except for Horatio, who actually reminded me very much of Mercutio when it came to his relationship with Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. And granted, he's playing mad, I suppose. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Rachel, to kind of maybe throw Claudius off the scent that he's planning to murder him. But you think he also could have let Ophelia into the whole thing if he does love her, as he says he does. But he barely gives her the time of day. And when he does, like you were both pointing out, we get the get thee to a nunnery exchange, and may, you know, I don't want, I, I'm me playing a little bit devil's advocate here, but maybe in his own way, he's trying to spare her feelings by being cruel to be kind. But I do feel he could have treated her a lot better. And of course, of course, the crux of the Hamlet character is the whole to be or not to be soliloquy. And Olivier nails that as you really get the idea, I think, that Hamlet is very much contemplating suicide as he speaks it. And then he could have just given to his suffering and end it all or take on, like he says, the pains of living and carrying on living. And I did find it curious that he clearly states to Claudius that he has killed Polonius and Claudius either does not catch on or he just doesn't care. I'm like, what is this? The guy's just openly telling you Polonius is now kind of food for worms. And Claudius is like, oh, go find him. And all this kind of thing is like, He's literally telling you he killed him. What aren't you gonna do anything about it? So I was just like blown away. Where is by he? That. He's in heaven. Do I need to spell it out for you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like it really makes no sense. Or unless it's like, oh, the kid is mad, you know, so I just will ignore that he killed him. But that's, that was very strange to me. So let's get to Hamlet's boon companion and the keeper of his secret when it comes to him wanting to take revenge on Claudius. We have Norman Wooland as Horatio. And this was actually his breakthrough role, which landed him on Richard III, once again with Olivier, Corvadis, the guns of Navarone, and many more. Rachel, when it came to Hamlet's possibly only friend, kind of his millhouse to his Bart Simpson, what did, what did you think of, of Horatio? Um, the Horatio needs new friends. <laughs> <laughs> He's fallen in with the wrong crap. <laughs> uh, yeah, he just. Yeah, I guess it's good that Hamlet has somebody to lean on, and um, because Horatio also witnessed the spirit, and actually before Hamlet did, that you know, mm -hmm. that that part is just. We know nobody's crazy in that sense, um, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's just, you know, he, he, I think the entire time, and by the time it's all over, he's just all like, he was probably thinking like me, like, just how did this go so wrong so quickly? Like, one minute, you know, we're just hanging out, and the next minute, you know, I'm playing 
second uh, to this duel that <laughs> he's having. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, seemingly, that's like what we've seen with other duels. Like if the, one person gets killed or injured, the other person is willing to step in in their place, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he's the... But at, by the end of it, you know, his best friend's dead, the king's dead, the queen's dead, uh, that other guy's dead. Uh, and, oh, yes, and there's, an, uh, there's a, a prince from another country that's come to invade and is now going to be king. The end. Yeah. <laughs> if I was if I was Horatio, I'd move. <laughs> like, yeah, I better get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, my time here is done. I got nothing left. Uh, so, uh, like, how is um, Ireland? Is that a country yet? How's that this time? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's true because they they wrote in the actual in the original play. There is the whole thing, obviously, about Norway being at odds with Denmark, and um, and I believe there's the the whole thing that Fortinbras, I believe, is the character who then who is not mm-hmm. actually there's in this. Like and- a whole other revenge plot. Yeah, and then the, the yeah, this and, other like royal guy of royalty wants to get revenge on Hamlet's father who killed his father, but then Hamlet's father's dead. So yeah, his audience will have to do boiled. I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I and because you have that whole political intrigue, which I guess. Evidently, Olivier didn't want to get into the whole political intrigue of the of the of the play, I guess, because already it was maybe too complex as it was. But uh, but it's yeah, already two and a half Poland. hours long, so you know. <laughs> and Poland had been through enough by 1948. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, you make a good point, Sandin. And, and actually, speaking <laughs> of speaking of you, what do you what did you make of Hamlet's buddy? The- the the problem with Hamlet's buddy is that he is exactly what you said. He is the millhouse to hang out with Bart <laughs> is that he's just there to tag along with Hamlet and be Hamlet's confidant and to just help Hamlet with whatever screwball plan Hamlet might have, even though it doesn't make sense and it probably isn't going to end well. Although Horatio is literally the only person this play ends well for. <laughs> He's left standing amongst, um, you know, amidst a room full of bodies going, well, I guess I have to tell this story now. <laughs> so he, it would have been nice if Horatio was a little bit of a, dude, really? We're doing this? You know, if he'd been a little more conscience for Hamlet. Rather he needs than to be Jiminy Cricket to Hamlet's Pinocchio, he really, yes. yeah, Hamlet needs a Jiminy Cricket. He does not need a Chester to his spike that just goes along with whatever he wants to do. He's Hamlet needs to be reined in, and Horatio is probably the only one that could do it. But Horatio probably knows that Hamlet is. <sighs> Hamlet's just a spoiled, entitled prince who's gonna get his way no matter what. If he, you know, I'll bet you anything. If if he, if Horatio defied Hamlet, Horatio would be gone. They wouldn't be friends anymore. It would be, a, you know, pox on both your houses. Wrong play, I know. But he, Hamlet, Hamlet would probably not stand for any sort of 
any, you know, Hamlet needs a yes man. He doesn't need a friend. And that's kind of what Horatio is for him. And it's, it's too bad for Horatio. You, you know, it makes you really feel for Horatio. But at the same time, you don't really feel a lot for Horatio because there's really not much there for him. You know, he and Hamlet, they both go to school. They're both just trying to, you know, be dudes in Denmark. But he's got to put up with Hamlet's moodiness, his spoiledness, his entitlement. And he also has to watch Hamlet do things like treat girls really badly. You know, the way Hamlet treats Ophelia is terrible. And he's got to, you know, he's got to watch that. and He's got to deal with, with that. And, you know, you would think in this day and age, you would think that a Horatio would be like, hey, Ophelia, yeah, no, stay away from him. Just, you know what? He's not worth it. Stay away from this guy. <laughs> just warning her the way Polonius is trying to forbid her. Just, yeah, like, no, this is a bad idea. So, you know, unfortunately, that's not a right without girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, there's not a lot to Horatio, but the Horatio is, he's not necessarily the angel on Hamlet's shoulder, but he is kind of the sanity on Hamlet's shoulder and that Hamlet doesn't listen to. And I can't understand why he's so loyal to Hamlet in the first place. I don't know what he's getting out of this friendship in the play where he's, he's like, Oh, Hamlet, you're dying. I'm going to go drink the rest of your mom's wine and die with you. But no Horatio. And even Hamlet is like, dude, no, you've got to tell our story. You've got to tell the world what happened here. What, you know, you got to tell the world about the betrayal and the, and the revenge. And, you know, by the way, when Fortinbras gets here, tell him, I, I think he should be king. So, um, he eventually does have a purpose. And I kind of like that Olivier sort of left that whole, like, you know, I'll die too for you, buddy, thing out of, out of this movie as, you know, as much as he did. Because you don't get it. I mean, I cannot understand why anybody would be that loyal to, to Hamlet as to want to commit suicide simply because Hamlet's going to be gone. Like, really? All right, whatever. Well, I, I suppose it, it's very true because fun fact also, when it comes to the actor, you know, Norman Woodland apparently <laughs> was so thankful that it was a Shakespearean play that got him his break because apparently this guy kept a herd of cows named after a, a character from a Shakespearean play. So this guy was a major fan of Shakespeare. And, you know, I guess Shakespeare loves his sidekicks or best friends when it comes to his players. He reminded me a little bit of Mercutio, as I said, from Romeo and Juliet, but at least Mercutio is much more of a dynamic character. And he actually tries to get Romeo a little bit out of his rut, if you will, whereas Horatio maybe is a little bit more passive compared to Mercutio. Granted, he does not really get to say much, but like you were, you were both pointing out, pretty much everywhere that Hamlet goes, he go, he's right there with him. I mean, I guess it could be the mark of a great friend that he will play along with Hamlet's feigned madness regardless of what he does. And he always stands by him, even after he's killed Polonius, and even after he and Hamlet find out that Ophelia's killed herself over grief. But yeah, one should, even you could be the best friend, the most devoted friend in the world, but you do draw the line at a certain point. And it seems to me that Horatio just doesn't know where to draw the line. And we, you know, we will, of course, discuss this more <coughs> when we talk about the ending. But I was like, heck, at the end of the day, rather than make this Fortin Brass, you know, a king, make Horatio king. I mean, he might actually do a better job. But, um, but uh, yeah, it, it, he is very much uh, sycophantic and can't just 
is, is, is Hamlet's little puppy dog. And I was kind of a little bit upset about that because I thought if your friends, when your friends do stupid things, you should kind of point out they're doing stupid things. But Horatia doesn't do that. So as we mentioned her, let's get to the tragic female character in this. And one who YouTube has multiple versions of the songs she sings in the play, Gene Simmons as Ophelia. Not, of course, the bass player for Kiss. It's spelt differently, folks. It's Gene Simmons, but uh, I'm not going to stand and explain that right now. She is, of course, and you'll probably know her from Guys and Dolls, Spartacus, The Happy Ending, and also the TV show The Thornbirds. So, Zan, when it comes to you, what did you think of Ophelia and the way Gene Simmons played her? Gene Simmons did a great job of playing her as playing her as a character of intense, intense sadness. Because we think of Ophelia as being just kind of a nut job. Yeah. But her madness comes from her sadness. And I think Jane Simmons did a really good job with this. Because Ophelia is one of the worst written characters for women in the history of theater. Yes. She's completely dependent on her... Her existence in her mind is completely dependent on the men in her life. Uh, either her brother or her father or Hamlet. Even though Hamlet is constantly giving her the runaround, she doesn't wise up and say, you know what, screw this. I mean, I get that he's a prince and everything like that, and there'd be nothing wrong with trying to court a prince just so you can maybe be princess or queen someday, but this this whole absolute devotion to him when he's nothing but cruel to her is is ridiculous. You know, the, the Ophelia is written to have so little self-respect that it, de- it depresses me because she could be such a fantastic character because she obviously does have a good relationship, a friendly relationship with her brother. They could be partners. He's, he's very fond of her. He respects her. So I don't, I've always been disappointed in how poorly written Ophelia is and how poorly she's treated. And, you know, towards the end of it, when she does commit suicide, she's kind of come by it a little bit honestly you know she's she's in love with a man that murdered her father so that's a hard one to get around that's going to cause anybody a tremendous amount of trauma i don't think it's a suicide thing as you know i don't think anything anything is a suicide thing there's always help reach out please but to, to have that on you is very, very difficult. And so for her, and that definitely does also explain some of her madness. That would drive anybody crazy to realize that you are in love with a man that killed your father. And at the same time, if she had survived to see the death of Laertes, that probably would have done her even worse. So there's part of you that thinks, okay, at least she didn't have to watch this. But it's just tragic what happened to her. It's just essentially mistreatment and the concept that a woman's only value is how loved she is by men and that her only inherent value is her desirability from two men and what kind of a man she can get and the only thing that could possibly be occupying a woman's time and thoughts is other is, is men and how much they love them so as a character, I feel as though she's done a tremendous disservice by Shakespeare. And, you know, Shakespeare is not 
particularly great at writing female characters. Um, but at the time, who was? You know, females were very, very most definitely, you know, second class citizens, if citizens at all. So the fact that we have these characters that we see that could be really wonderful characters are just footnotes to our male protagonists is is sad when you look at it when when you look at it you know in hindsight but again i think that that gene simmons did a fantastic job of really showing her descent i suppose her descent into from from sadness to madness although i will say i wouldn't necessarily look at a girl with flowers in your hair and think oh crazy so that was an interesting that was an interesting choice on the part of the uh, designers on this one. Like, yeah, the crazier she gets, just put more flowers in her hair. That'll that'll show the audience. <laughs> Before flower children were actually a thing, right? So that's right, exactly. <laughs> so and and you you do make a good point, Zan, because it's true. Shakespeare tended to almost have a problem writing positive female characters. When it came to writing villainous ones, he was brilliant because I think like for example, Lady Macbeth is one of the best villains yeah. ever and she's like the one of the fantastic villains and one of my actually favorite shakespearean villains but it seems like he had a problem doing positive female characters for some reason and right the only thing positive a female can do is be there for her man yeah and even lady macbeth she's kind of there for her man <laughs> so, <laughs> he has a hard time getting around that i think true yes and rachel what were your thoughts on ophelia she got the short shaft on this. Um, it, it, she did a, a good job with her portrayal. Um, I did struggle, though, with trying to figure out... Like I understood some of her uh, kind of descent into madness and eventual suicide had to do uh, with the loss of her father. Um, but I, I'd really question whether what she felt, if she even felt anything for Hamlet and whether it was genuine or not, because I got the impression that maybe he was pursuing her. She kind of maybe enjoyed it just because of the attention. Like, oh, look, the prince is, you know, showing me attention. That's a you know good thing because that's all I'm good for as a woman. Uh, but then when her brother goes to, to leave for France and he's like, you know, you need to stay away from this guy. He's bad news. And then her dad is the same way. You need to stay away from this guy. He's bad news. And, you know, her dad becomes convinced that Hamlet's gone crazy out of his love for her. And then when they have that confrontation, he, he's like, you know, I never loved you. And she's so upset, which yeah, I can kind of understand that because, you know, he's written her these these letters that seemingly declare his love for her. So it's like, you know, I've got it here, right? You said you loved me and now you're telling me you didn't. Um, but she just she just absolutely loses it when he goes off on her and her father pops out from hiding her the entire thing and she's like laying on the steps just bawling her eyes out and they're like well now we've got that answered and they just walk away leaving her on the floor just 
bawling her eyes out. Like, no wonder she's, you know, goes into severe depression to the point of, you know, suicidal ideation because nobody seems to give a crap about her feelings. Everybody's telling her what she should be doing, but nobody's actually talking to her. Hmm. And seeing if she's okay, if she needs any support. Like, both her and Hamlet are both victims, I think, of um, seemingly that upper, that stereotypical upper class, upper crust. Yeah, we're people, you know, the parents are people, people of money and position and power and they have kids because they have to, because you have to continue the family line. But really, they still give a shit about their kids. <laughs> they're just there. And they're lucky if they live long enough to give them grandkids to keep the family line going. <laughs> so it's like, no wonder both her and Hamlet just kind of went off, you know, off the rails because they have no affection whatsoever from their parents um at least not any healthy affection from their parents um so yeah so the by the time she gets to just uh, you know putting the flowers in her hair and just kind of jumping in the river and just kind of floating away till apparently her dress just got so full of water i don't know what the obsession is with things absorbing water in this dead bodies <laughs> and her dress uh, her dress just gets so full of water that she just sinks. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really, really odd. You know, you'd think maybe she would attach, I don't know, a weight to her feet or something like that. But I guess they were the whole almost poetic thing of her cruising I mean, down. I know the, the ladies then wear like five million layers. So, yeah, it is a lot of clothing, but still, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, unless she had, you know, I guess a particularly heavy sort of underclothing when she decided to kill herself. Because other than that, yeah, you make a very good point there, Rich, because that river or lake or what have you doesn't seem particularly deep. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's what it doesn't seem like she could have gone very far either, because like she floats away and the camera doesn't follow right away. Um and he do this a couple of times too, where like people move out of the sh- frame of the camera, but the camera stays where it is. Yeah. So you're just looking at the scenery <laughs> and you get this voiceover that's all like, yeah, she's floated until her clothing got so wet that she drowned. And, but then when the camera pans over, it's like, you see a bunch of weeds and like cattails and trees and stuff. I'm like, it doesn't look like she could have floated very far before she would have got caught up in the in the plant life in this in this creek. And and then we could have had the blooper reel of drat, I can't even do this. You know, as she tried to maybe yeah. kill herself. She's like, boom, kind of goes up against something. She's like, it's really yeah, irked fact, that she can't yeah, kill herself. If she, gonna, if she was gonna drown, I expect her to do, you know, to be in some sort of body of water like um like uh Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> you know, when Viggo Mortensen almost drowns in real life because he's in this like rapids and he gets pulled into an undertow, you know, 
exactly maybe with something with a stronger current for sure i mean i i did find this character odd because granted we are dealing with something that was written at the turn of the 1600s so women probably did not get great treatment literally and figuratively speaking and so my criticism of course you know is very much colored by 2021 eyes she is you know clearly besotted with hamlet and when he spurns her and continues to spout the famous quote get thee to a nunnery like you were saying, Rachel, she takes that incredibly to heart as to her, Hamlet is the only man for her. And I was almost wondering whether because her brother Laertes had warned her to steer clear of him, maybe it made him even more attractive to her because he's kind of like the bad boy that everybody says you should steer clear of. And she kind of maybe finds that attractive. But she I and mean, Sansa Stark could have an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Very, I, I'd love to see that, to be honest. The parallels <laughs> to this in Game of Thrones are not lost on me. <laughs> oh, no, definitely. I, I, have a, I have a feeling George R. R. Martin definitely was looking at I knew this play back and forth for sure. And a lot of this, this film, though, is left to interpretation from the audiences. We never see when she's told that Hamlet killed her father and that pushes, pushes her over the edge. And when it came to Gene Simmons's portrayal, I, she did great in, for the most part. At times, she seemed a little over the top. But to me, she really nailed it when we find her singing to herself and the death scene. It was very creepy and dark. But there were moments where I'm like, whoa, chill there, girl. You know, because she's kind of like rushing all over. And I'm like, okay, chill, chill out, chill out. But, um, but other than that, That's you know, that she, <laughs> she was like going nuts. So I was like, yeah, I was like, chill, girl, seriously. Um, so from our first big female character to another, let's look at Hamlet's mother, Eileen Hurley as Gertrude, who our listeners might know from All My Children. Rachel, what were your thoughts on, on Hamlet's mama? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Start with old Gertrude. Yeah. Again, I can understand why she remarried so quickly because at that time period and just being royalty, you don't have a lot of choices because it darn sure ain't going to let the queen just rule by herself. Mm -hmm. That ain't going to happen. Um, so she has to marry. Uh, again, I don't understand why Hamlet was not made king. Uh, get what the like order succession was there. Uh, he needed to finish school before he was allowed to be qualified to be king or something. Um, you know, and obviously she's, she's supposed to be older because she's got a you know, fully adult son. So I don't think they were expecting her to produce any more heirs. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I can understand why she got remarried so quickly the fact that she seems so happy about it is disconcerting. Um, and I can see why Hamlet was so upset because it does seem like she's just utterly besotted with her new husband and very happy about being Mrs. Again, I guess. Um, but yeah, they're her and her son's relationship leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, she's not comforting at all, you know, when he seemingly hears the voice of his father again, and of course she doesn't say anything, which, again, how does this work that Horatio and these centuries could see him, but not 
the queen. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so many questions. And yeah, and then their their seemingly incestuous relationship just made my stomach just churn <laughs> every time those two were, you know, get up close together and kissy kissy, and her dresses were very low cut in some cases. So I was like, "What is going on here?" Mm. True. I mean, you, you do wonder whether maybe uh, it was kind of almost an excuse for Laurence Olivier to kind of have some fun time with Eileen Hurley. Could be. I don't know. But I mean, because apparently she was also younger than him, I believe. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a puzzler. It's yeah, like I said, she was like 26. And Olivia was like 40. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a conscious choice that he made, though, for them to like when they were having a moment that they would kiss each other on the lips like that uh, for way more than just a chaste familial kiss. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if that his interpretation of it or what, but I no, that was not a choice that I would have made. <laughs> No, I, I guess he wanted to really, I, I guess, sort of uh, play up the whole Oedipus complex, I suppose. But uh, I mean, because if you sort of read the, you know, read the play, and I actually watched the Kenneth Branagh version, you don't really get that kind of thing of I'm kind of, you know, um, I've, I've got the hots for my mom. So I don't know. It's it's a weird one. Yeah, but isn't isn't that already done in one of his other plays though? Yeah, I believe. Yes, I believe so. I believe. Uh, I believe. Um, he. What well, we had seen it elsewhere too. Yes, it, it does seem yeah, to be. Uh, a, a, yeah, a, I know that the whole Oedipus thing, but I thought he had he had done something similar in one of his other plays. Mm, true. Never done yeah. that. Got the T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He and, and Hitchcock could talk about guys with daddy, uh, mommy issues. <laughs> oh yes, very much so. <laughs> and Zan, what were your thoughts on Gertrude? This portrayal of Gertrude was interesting because Gertrude, what I'm used to seeing when I see a portrayal of Gertrude is just this sort of oblivious court, courtesan lady mm. where her love for Hamlet is that sort of distanced mother's love like, oh, come to me, child. I'll see you for five minutes before you go to bed and kiss you on the head and you spend the rest of your day with your nanny type person. And the whole concept of you would think that a woman who marries her dead husband's brother would have been in on that, but you don't get the feeling that Gertrude is in on the murder at all. That she just, like I said before, she was probably duped by Claudius and seduced after after his after her husband was murdered. So she's she's sort of this oblivious person and you know when Hamlet comes in to yell at her about like how could you do this he's you know he's the murderer and you know part of me wonders about the ghost of the king why isn't the king showing himself to his wife does he feel betrayed mm -hmm. by her as well I don't know there's an interesting thing going on in there that they don't really examine in this play at all but again Gertrude is a female character who cares she's just a throwaway character thank you very much Shakespeare so um I always kind of got the feeling about this character is that she's very oblivious and unobservant and not really examining her life or the events in her life. 
But there's a scene in this that was played very differently than I've ever seen it done. And it's the duel scene. And there's the, the, and the cup of wine. And mm -hmm. there are a couple of times where she glances at the cup of wine and you almost get the feeling that she knows what she's doing, that she knows that mm. oh, she knew exactly what, what she was doing. Right. She knew exactly what she was doing. She's thinking to herself, well, if what my son is telling me is true, I married my husband's murderer. My son is probably going to die in this because my husband, who I know kills people, <laughs> just put something in this drink. <laughs> I'm going to lose my son. And I'm married to my husband's killer. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. So it, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm out. Peace out. I'm going to drink this wine. So you get the feeling like she knew what she was doing rather than other performances I've seen of this where she comes in. She's like, I shall drink to my son's success. Glug. And everybody's like, well, hang on it. Whoa. And of course, you know, you know, we know as the audience that if she does that, Claudius is going to have to say something. And I think she knows that, too. And I think that's an interesting way they chose to portray this character in this movie. You know, I don't know if that was her choice or Olivia's choice or how they, you know, how they came to that. But she knows that regardless of what happens during this outcome of this duel, if she drinks this drink, she is going to succeed where Hamlet failed when it came to the play of trying to get him to show his hand, trying to get shot, trying to get Claudius to show his hand as to, Oh yeah, I, I totally did kill that, kill my brother. Yeah. Uh, you got me. <laughs> um, but again, I feel I, I, this is another woman I feel like is mistreated by Hamlet because, you know, even though she seems a lot more deliberate in this, in this version of this, I still don't think that Hamlet should be as nasty to her for the death of her father, the death of his father. I really don't think she was complicit in that at all. Um, he can be nasty about like, dude, really? It's been a month and you married my uncle? Gross. But you know, how he throws her around and is nasty with her. I don't, you know, she, she's very mistreated, unfortunately. Again, common in Shakespeare. <laughs> but I did find, I did find that, that whole, I know it's in this wine. I'm going to do this. I thought that was an interesting take on the play. I, I, I really did like that. Well, it seems, well, it seems like, yeah, because we kind of all, all felt that way because, you know, folks who have listened to this podcast or elsewhere know that I'm a very proud feminist. And I was in kind of two minds about Gertrude, because on one side, I tried to put myself in Hamlet's place when he kind of implies that she's a bit easy as coming from him. Apparently, his father was this wonderful man and was the complete opposite of Claudius, both in body and in mind. And I suppose if you put it into context, though, it was possibly normal to marry your husband's brother should he shove off the mortal coil before you did in order to maintain status. But I suppose like Hamlet, you do wonder how much she actually knows when it comes to his father's murder, though I am of the assumption that she that she is innocent and oblivious, as like you were both pointing out, if not King Hamlet's ghost would have said something and would not have asked Hamlet to spare her because he's like, take revenge on Claudius, but don't kill your mom. And. That said, if you do love a man so much, it did not take her long to get over his death. 
when it comes to this version of the play adaptation, you know, we have the scene where Hamlet and Laertes are having their fencing match. I very much agree with you both. The looks that Gertrude gives when, when we get the poisoned cup coming into play made me think as well that she knew exactly what was going on and she was willing to poison herself. And conscience may have maybe come to bite her after the, the, the whole thing that Hamlet had, after the play that Hamlet had organized and the talk that her and Hamlet had had after it. And to me, it is the guilt kind of caught up with her and her eyes were finally open and she could not live with that guilt of, you know, like you were saying, Zan, I'm married to my, my husband's murderer. So it was a, it, that was a nice way, I think, in a curious way of, of how um, Olivier played that for sure. But yes, she is very much a mistreated character, as William Shakespeare's want to do with his females. So let's take a deeper dive into the Denmark court with Claudius's chief advisor and the first of many who get killed off in this film. We have Sir Felix Aylmer as Polonius. Zan, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on Polonius? Well, Polonius, he, he is our ultimate yes man. Mm. Because, you know, he he just goes from, you know, being the... <laughs> being the, the advisor to one king to the other. So he's got to do what his king needs him to do. But at the same time, we talked a little bit about this, that he is a protective father. You know, he's, he's well aware of the problems with Hamlet and how he really needs to stay the heck away, <laughs> away from his daughter. And Polonius has the, I, I, I think, the best quote in this play and the one that I think most people should follow in their lives, which is when his, um, when Laertes wants to go to France, he just says to him, to thine own self be true. So he's, you can tell he's a very loving father and, you know, interested in the well-being of his children, but at the same time, He's, I think he's so, he's so anti-Hamlet that it prevents him from being anti-Claudius until it's way too late. And, you know, unfortunately he takes the wrong end of the sword for Claudius because Claudius has said, Hey, you know, you know, see what, see what my wife and her kid are talking about in there after this play. Cause you know. That was kind of an inflammatory script he wrote there for me, don't you think? So, you know, unfortunately, he's the one behind the curtain. He's the one that gets stabbed. And you, you almost want to say, like, could you have maybe, like, popped out a little sooner and said, so, where are you getting this information? <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate what happens to, it's unfortunately what happens to Polonius because, like I said, his job is to be loyal to the king, and unfortunately, he has to be loyal to a murderous jerk that happened to kill his way into being king. So he's he's pretty tragic, and you know, like I said, I feel like if anybody deserves revenge in this play, it's Laertes, <laughs> and that's why you can tell this is a family that is very supportive of each other. Yes, indeed. And we definitely will have quite a bit to say about Laertes as well. But yep. now, Rachel, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on, on Polonius? 
<clears throat> yeah, he's uh he's just he's just found himself in a, a, a tough spot. Um again, it's interesting how much he seems to care for his son and uh you know gives him all this sage advice as he gets ready to, to go back to school in, in France. Um but again, his daughter She's on the floor distraught, and he's just like, okay, well, let's go uh, work on some stuff. Uh, I'll see you later, kid. Uh, it's just, you know, <laughs> again, sons versus daughters. Um, and, yeah, he he makes some, some choices that, again, turn out to be the end of his existence. Um and uh, he, I don't know. He, he just, he must have been one of those kids that really liked to find all the good hiding places. <laughs> and that just continued until his older years. Because, like, every other scene he's in, he's all like, oh, you know, at first he'd tell, like, you know, the king and the queen to, like, hide over here where I talk to Hamlet so you can see how crazy he is. Uh, and then what you know, he's talking to the queen and she's you know, he's like, I'm gonna hide over here so I can listen to see how crazy your son is. You know, see how you know, is he still crazy? Is he more crazy? What's he crazy about now? Um so you know he did not pass spying one on one um <laughs> at all. So you know, uh, some of the things that yeah, I mean, it sucks that he was killed, uh, especially because Hamlet seems so just blasé about it, too. Like, once he pulled out his sword and pulled the tapestry aside, and he's like, oh, that's Polonius, not my uncle. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, finishes talking to his mom, gives her a few more smooches, and he's like, bye, mom, and just drags him out of the room. <laughs> Like you just didn't just kill a man essentially in cold blood because you thought he was someone else. No. Yeah. So like <laughs> it's like Polonius, yeah. some of this is on you, but some of it's on the Hamlet, so sorry. <laughs> Hopefully I... you know, uh, I'm guessing considering you know, he dies and then, you know, his daughter dies and then his son dies that nobody's going to be jumping in his grave cuddling his corpse like his son was cuddling his daughter. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, sadly, there's no sympathy for, for, for Polonius. I mean, he, he does seem to be very wise. And of course, as, as also Suzanne was pointing out, when, and you were pointing out also, Rachel, when he comes to giving his son Laertes advice on what to do and what not to do. And, and of course, we do get that famous phrase, to thine own self be true. It, and the whole kind of speech remind me a little bit of Rudyard Kipling's uh, If poem as well, the way he kind of gave him all the guidelines to, to what to do and what not to do. And I feel he very much has the interests of his kids at heart. And yes, sadly, more, uh, more alertes than Ophelia. Though I guess like some parents, he has a tough time understanding the new generation. And you wonder whether if he hadn't misdiagnosed Hamlet's feigned madness as sickness of the heart over Ophelia, whether he may still be alive. 
Also, I wonder whether he did not make Ophelia, whether he did not make Ophelia privy, privy to the fact that he and Claudius were keeping an eye on Hamlet. Because once again, rope Ophelia into the deal. Somebody, either Hamlet tell Ophelia what's going on or Polonius say, you know, daughter, this is what we're doing. And speaking of which, you have to feel bad for him in having to basically spy for Claudius to find out more about Hamlet acting on Claudius's suspicions and yep, getting himself killed. But yes, he is very much the ultimate yes man as well. And, you know, he does, and, uh, as, as you were roughly rightly pointing out, uh, Zan, he, uh, he literally realizes that Claudius is the wrong guy when it is too late. So let's get to Polonius's dutiful son, Terence Morgan as Laertes, who my listeners might know from Sir Francis Drake, The Penthouse, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and many more. So Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of Laertes? Um, I mean, he doesn't get a lot of screen time because he goes off to France, yes. um, which is really convenient. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he, he seems to have a level head on his shoulders, I mm. guess, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, cause he's, he's seemingly, I guess, a learned man, um, but you know, he when he comes back and uh, you know sees what's happened to his his father and then his sister and then you know he's so distraught there at his sister's funeral and upset about the way that they're they're treating her and I guess I got the impression that he thought that she should be getting like a bigger to do as far as funerals are concerned. Yes. Is the way I was interpreting it. Like, you know, she was special. She was important. And, you know, the vicar or whatever is like, yeah, I mean, you guys are nobility, I guess, but you're not royalty. Therefore, you're not going to get like a royal funeral. Mm. Um, you know, and then he jumps, in the, <laughs> jumps in the grave. You know, because he's like, no, I want to spend more time with her, you know. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you've just gone over the deep end, too. So, <laughs> let's all just go to the, to that, you know, the next meeting of the, uh, my family is screwed up, people I love have died, and therefore I'm uh, having a mental breakdown club. Uh, <laughs> he could be a card carrying member too. Um, so, you know, and then, you know, Claudius takes advantage of his grief. Yeah. Because he already blames Hamlet for his sister's death because he just assumes that you know, she killed herself because the man she loved rebuked her and, you know, Claudius swoops in and he's all like, oh, I've got this, you know, you want to get revenge? Yeah, <laughs> it's a poison, couple of different kinds. You know, we got like we're gonna have our main poison, then we're gonna have our backup poison, <laughs> and um, you know, all you could do is just cut him. You don't even have to stab him. You just gotta cut him just a little bit. Boom, dead. <laughs> yeah, you know, Bob's your uncle, and he just falls for it, and, and it's a backfire again. But thankfully, as he's at death's door, he comes to his senses and realizes that this whole revenge plot was 
stupid and confesses, you know, to to Hamlet so that he's aware of it. He's like, yeah, this was your uncle's idea. Yes, he really is a jackass. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's very very well put, Rachel. And and Zan, what were you? I know you had quite a bit, quite a few thoughts on Laertes. What were these thoughts on him? Um, in this movie, I think Laertes is my favorite character because mm. he he's he's one of the few that I feel like is a decent human being in general. <laughs> and I feel like he comes by his revenge, honestly. Hamlet not only kills his father, but is indirectly responsible for the deep, deep depression. Well, he's directly responsible for the deep, deep depression that sends his sister into a suicidal fugue of madness. So, and he, and like Rachel was saying, you know, he's having a really hard time with her funeral. He's like, no, she was a good person. I don't care if she committed suicide. She deserves more than this suicidal pauper's funeral that we're giving her. Mm. And, you know, where he, you know, he challenges Hamlet to a duel. And then, you know, the, the king is like, hey, come here. Let's let's do this. Let's do this poison thing. I got, <laughs> got this got this covered for you, buddy. And and again, he realizes a little bit too late that he has hitched his wagon to the wrong dude. You know, you don't you don't want to be on the side of Claudius. He's he's terrible. He's he's the worst one. So, but what the thing about Laertes and Hamlet is that I get the feeling that they grew up together. Yeah. And they're just sort of dudes that know each other from school. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's the guy my sister likes. It's that <laughs> kind of a relationship. I don't feel like, I mean, they're friendly, but they're not close. So why he, as he's dying, accepts Hamlet's lame-ass apology and says, oh, Hamlet, I forgive you. It was all, it was the king. He's the one that poisoned the thing and he helped me poison the tip of the sword. And so he's why I'm going to die. He's why you're going to die. Uh, peace out. Because Hamlet's apology to Laertes is basically, dude, I was acting so crazy. I don't even know what I was doing. You know, it's, it's basically, oh, I was so high that night. I don't even remember mm-hmm. what happened. And <laughs> It's so freaking insincere and so a blatant attempt to absolve himself of any actual responsibility of the horrible things he's done to Laertes and his family. So I feel like even though Hamlet does have a pretty good case for revenge, he goes about it so wrong and he's such a little bitch when it comes to all of his you know, all of his expectations and his behaviors. Whereas Laertes is, you know, dealing with, <laughs> dealing with tragedy, dealing with tragedy, dealing with tragedy, dealing, sees Hamlet like, oh, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> he feels more, there's something about Laertes that feels more pure than Hamlet to me. Hmm. Because yes, Hamlet lost a father to murder, but Laertes is more, even though he's very hot-headed about it when he sees Hamlet and he's just ready to kill him, he's a little bit more level-headed about it, even though he does throw in with the king to to have a sure thing with uh, with a duel. He's a little more level-headed about it, and 
goes about it. You know, as we see, Laertes revenge takes like a half an hour. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> Hamlet's revenge takes about four and a half hours for us to deal with. <laughs> so there's yeah, Laertes I think you know, aside you know, aside from her you know, Horatio is a pretty decent guy too, but we don't get a lot of his personality, but we get a little bit more about Laertes as a person. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I said he comes by his revenge honestly. And he's I feel like when he is for even though he is forgiving Hamlet at the end of it, I like to think of it more that he is betraying the king. You know, his forgiveness of Hamlet is because what he really wants to do is betray the king. Once he realizes that we're all going to die here because of Claudius, that he's poisoned Hamlet's drink. His wife has now drunk it. I've been stabbed with the sword. He's been stabbed with the sword. We're all going to die because of the came from, from Claudius. He's more, it's more that his forgiveness of Hamlet comes from the motivation of betraying the king. And so that's how I like it with it later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he is a very curious chap. As apparently, you know, he and Hamlet were, like you were pointing out, Sam, that's what I got, actually good friends, even though we don't see them interact at all till after Ophelia has committed suicide and Polonius has been killed. Added to that, I got the impression, yeah, he wasn't particularly a fan of Hamlet's, as we see him pretty much forbidding Ophelia to have any sort of dealings with him and such. And even though, according to Hamlet, they've always been friends, so go figure, he somewhat reminded me also a little bit of Tybalt from uh, Romeo and Juliet. And pretty much as soon as he gets home from Paris, you know, he wants to get his revenge on Hamlet for murdering his father and causing his sister to commit suicide. And I do very much agree with you, Rachel, <clears throat> when you point out that his grief is somewhat is manipulated by Claudius. He is a noble character who plays by the rules. And but when he attacks Hamlet during their fencing in order to poison him, he does do a little bit of a dick move as as soon as Hamlet has his guard down and he's kind of getting ready for the next round, he's like, have at you kind of thing. And I'm like, that wasn't really cool. You've been playing by the rules up until now, and then you had to go and do that. So he kind of lost his nobility to me a little bit in that at that point. But but up until then, he had very much been a very noble character. But uh, but I felt that kind of because um, if you think about it, also in the the 1600s, you're 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 going you're having a duel. You're not you're going to you know because you're a gentleman, you're going to wait for the other guy to be ready before you attack them. And to, you know, to start off, and he doesn't do that. And I was like, eh, that wasn't really kind of noble of you, man. But I get, I get yeah, what you're Yeah, but it's doing. Hamlet. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> True. I will give you that, Zan. But yeah, I wouldn't know. I, I definitely enjoyed this character. So before we get to our main villain, I thought it was fair to give a brief mention to an actor we had talked about on our Patreon review of Star Wars, none oh. other than Mr. Peter Cushing as Osric. <laughs> So, Zan, first off, what did you think of Peter Cushing in this? And did you realize it was Peter Cushing? I, I did know it was Peter Cushing. And that man can fop till he drops. He's, <laughs> he did, he's, it's so different than what I'm used to with Peter Cushing. Because the Osric character is, you know, any sort of foppish dandy is going to be the comic relief. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, when you look at the definition of fop, it's basically a, a man who's really interested in his clothes. Mm. 
we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know what we're trying to say here. And he's a hipster. <laughs> okay, yeah, there you go. He did have on the skinniest skinny jeans I have ever seen. Um, but you know the, the whole thing that he does with you know fluffing his clothing and flipping his hair. He does. He does a good job of being the comic relief, even though I don't necessarily think this type of comic relief is funny. Um, there, there are certain things that you know, movies like you know, movies and, and plays like things like La Cage aux Folles, mm-hmm. where the comedy is basically in the fact that the two parents are gay stereotypes. I don't necessarily think being gay is funny. So <laughs> I don't find that amusing. <laughs> so to me, when something relies on that for comedy, it falls short for me. You know, right. just like I, the same way I outgrew fart jokes. You know, right. it's like, I'm, you know, I'm 44 years old. I'm well aware of the fact that everybody farts. Okay. It's just like, it'd be like laughing at blinking or something. <laughs> so, um, Although that comedy is kind of that sort of comedy of like, oh, look at the gay guy. Isn't he effeminate is really lost on me. There was just something fascinating about watching Peter Cushing doing what was supposed to be comic relief. Because I don't see Peter Cushing in funny roles. You know, he's either he's either Mosh Tarkin or he's Van Helsing in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It just it just shows you that Peter Cushing can do absolutely anything. He's a fantastic actor, and he's put him in any situation, anywhere. And I was I was actually talking about this uh, with um, Charles and Jesse and Holly when we were talking about the three Doctors. That a lot of the people who were on Doctor Who were, you know, trained at the Royal Shakespeare Company and Shakespearean actors, and. That's one thing you can say for people who are classically trained actors like that. They have a job. They're going to do it. I don't care if it's an Oscar-winning Shakespeare movie or it's if it's a Hammer picture. They're going to do their job and they're going to be a good actor. And Peter Cushing is the prime prime example of that. Like, I, I absolutely adore, adore, adore Peter Cushing. <laughs> Comedy from this character is a little bit lost on me. Peter Cushing did a good job. <laughs> well, I- I'm totally with you. And even when he has to do two rather cheesy Doctor Who movies, he, he puts his heart and soul into them. So yeah, he's doing a job. He's not he's not phoning it in. He's like, somebody hired me to act this part. They're paying me. I said yes. Let's do this thing. Exactly. And and Rachel, what were your thoughts on the character of Osric? And uh, were you did you recognize Peter Cushing behind the kind of beard and the hair and the dress and the clothes? <laughs> I did. His voice is just distinctive. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, I found this character, this character, extremely amusing. Um, it's just so wild to see someone that I know best as Grand Moff Tarkin, and therefore it's just this very serious, you know, high-ranking official in the Empire, you know giving out orders at the Death Star, you know, just not showing any emotion, really, <laughs> um, to being this just 
kind of, you know, hipster dandy, you know, he first shows up and he's all like, you know, fanning himself with his hat. And he's like, oh, sire, isn't it hot? And the Hamlet's like, no, not really. And he's like, oh, no, it's not. It's quite cool, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and eventually, you know, he tells him you know, about the, the, the duel and everything. And he does this pratfall where he like falls down the steps, like <laughs> face first. And he's, it's so funny. It's just so not the Peter Cushing that I have in my head from Star Wars. And I just loved it so much. Uh, who knew he was capable of being that funny? <laughs> yeah, which once again is great credit to, to, to the legendary Peter yeah. Cushing indeed. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's, you know, for as much as I dislike Shakespeare uh, to uh, quote uh, Crowley in the, the, uh, adaptation, the Amazon adaptation of Good Omens. I prefer the funny ones. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> very, very well said. I mean, yes, because in a tragic and very somber story, he is almost a comedic relief in all this. Is even though you know he's pretty much sending Hamlet to his death. I, I could not but smile and chuckle at, you know, the rather dandy and foppish nature of this character and how he struggles to try and keep up with Hamlet and Horatio as they wander through the castle. And then, like you mentioned, Rachel, he tumbles down the stairs and you're like, the guy, just, you know, it's, I, I really had to hand it to Peter Cushing because, you know, also the fact that he can do slapstick comedy as well. It's like, wow, is there anything this guy can't do? And... Was it? And I don't know if it was just me, or he's fully into the whole plot. I mean, I wonder whether he how much he knows about what's going to happen. As granted, he is the messenger and also the referee in the fencing match between Hamlet and Laertes. But I got the impression he was one of those closest to Claudius, or that he was at least aware of what was going on. So, but it, but uh, but Peter Cushing, it's always a joy seeing, and I'm so glad at least one. Of the amazing actors that we got here, you know, up from the Hammer days, like Sir Christopher Lee as well, we actually got, this guy actually got a speaking part. I'm still a little bit sore on Patrick Troughton, but I'll get over it. But other than that, uh, I, I, I love this guy to death. So let's get to our main villain of this picture. Of course, we have Basil Sidney as Claudius, who our listeners might know from Ivanhoe, and who we will meet again in Around the World in 80 Days. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of our villain? Oh, he's just, he's a bad, 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 bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> it ha obviously has no remorse whatsoever. Uh, you know, we, we do see him freak out at the, at the play performance because, mm -hmm. yeah, whether at that point he realizes that, that Hamlet's onto him or it's just uh, maybe a little bit of guilt. I don't know. Um that, uh, but he seemingly just, you know, he killed his own brother because he saw, he saw an opportunity, which again, somebody explained to me how you kill someone by putting poison in their ear. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that is something that maybe needs to go in the mouth or maybe up the nose or uh, in an open wound. I don't. I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, but for whatever reason, it worked. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, just, um, 
he's this, you know, he, he, when we first see him and, you know, he's there with the, the rest of the royal court or whatever and just kind of, you know, talking about, oh, you know, I'm so happy to be, you know, to be able to step in and, and take care of the queen and, you know, be with her and to, to take over for my brother and uh, all of these, all of these things. And he, he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy, but then you start to see more of the, the, the real, who he really is um, as, as time goes on. And it's just like, yeah, you just wanted to be king, didn't you, Scar? Again, flying king. <laughs> so, you know, just, just think of Jeremy Irons, and uh, <laughs> there you go. And be prepared. Yes. <laughs> well played, Zan, well played. <laughs> and, and, and what were your thoughts on our Scar, or shall we say Claudius, in this case? Claudius is the worst of the worst in this play. He in in all of all of drama because he is murderous, duplicitous, and can hide it. He's the one guy in this story that can hide it because even with the play within the play he could make a case for, well, I will not stand for such slanderous lies. If somebody asks him why that play made him so angry, you know, what do you have to hide, King Claudius? Oh, I will not stand for such slander. There's no way I would kill my brother. He, he could play off of that, but he, he can't hide it when he's like, wait, don't, don't, don't drink that. That's not for you, mm-hmm. sweetheart. Don't, I don't want you to drink. I got another glass here for you. Hang on. You know, that's that's his downfall is that he probably I always got the feeling reading this play is that Claudius has been in love with Gertrude from the second the king. And that's that's the problem is that the king is the ghost of Hamlet's father. There's really no name for the for the for the dead king. Um when as soon as his brother saw Gertrude and fell for her. It's like they probably both saw her at the same time. I get this feeling they both saw her at the same time, both fell in love with her, but the king is who got her, and Claudius has been stewing ever since. And like Rachel said, he saw his opportunity and he took it. And I wonder sometimes, depending on how Claudius is played, did he do that to be king, or did he do that to be Gertrude's husband? Because I think he's been plotting how he's going to seduce her with comfort for a long time that he's been watching her and he knows all the right things to say and everything she's going to want to hear because it only takes him a month after his son, (laughs) after his brother dies to be able to get married to Gertrude. Carrie Fisher talks about when Mike Todd was killed and Mike Todd, of course, being Eddie Fisher's best friend and his wife at the time, Liz Taylor being Debbie Reynolds, best friend. He says, Carrie Fisher says that when Mike Todd died and Elizabeth Taylor was alone and distraught, my father flew to be by her side and moved around to her front. 
<laughs> gradually <laughs> worked way to her front. And I feel like that's that's how Claudius did this, is that he, you know, I I sometimes think that Claudius did this to be Gertrude's husband. And the king part was just a nice little bonus. <laughs> but yeah, he's the worst of the worst because he's he's murderous and duplicit and can shut up about it. And can do it underhandedly and still get people to trust him, work for him, marry him, and be loyal to him. And even even Laertes, he knows how to play on people's, obviously, as we've seen with Gertrude, he knows how to play on people's sadness. Because Laertes is furious about the fact that because of Hamlet, essentially his entire family is dead. And Claudius, again, seeing an opportunity, is like, so, hate my stepson, do ya? Can't say I blame <laughs> you. Let me give you this sword, and here's this little bottle of stuff. Just one little bit of it is all you need. And again, if if Gertrude hadn't died and Laertes had not seen the amount of carnage this whole thing was going to cause, Laertes, I think, would have also kept his mouth shut about it. And, you know, Hamlet would be dead and Claudius would be left to, you know, I don't know how Claudius was going to handle Fordenbras, which is, you know, something we'll talk about later about the things that were missing in this movie. I don't think he was good enough as a king to handle Fortinbras, but he probably would have figured out something horrible to do, some sort of horrible duplicitous thing. Even and he did. He actually did. I mean, what the way this play goes is he sends a letter saying, "Kill Hamlet and invade Poland and leave Denmark alone." Like he's trying to make a deal with Hamlet's life. So. Yeah, he's he's the biggest bad of everybody in this play. He very much is. Definitely zero love for this character on my end, too. I mean, he's definitely the perfect Shakespearean villain, because there's definitely one thing Shakespeare knew how to write it was villains. And yes. when it came when it came to him, I very I immediately got vibes of Richard the Third, as I mentioned oh, earlier. Oh, so much. Yeah. yeah. It, it's really him and Richard the Third, best buddies. It's like if you have the villains club of Shakespeare, <laughs> you'd have Richard the Third and uh, and Claudius kind of quaffing together for sure, saying, "So who did you influence? You know, who did you kind of manipulate today?" Kind of thing. So and um, they're could... both sec- they're both secretly in love with Lady Macbeth. That's right. There you go. I could so see that. There we go. Our uh-huh. Shakespeare's villains club. <laughs> hey, there's there's an inspiration for somebody who you know for maybe a comic book writer or something you know kind of off color Shakespeare stuff that would work so so well. Shakespeare and, fan fiction. You're welcome to that idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We've just given you a bomb of an of an idea to do. And yes, because Claudius is just like Richard the Third. He's manipulative. He's power hungry, and will go to any extreme to get what he wants. And Obviously, as I mentioned, the whole thing of Richard III, who literally seduced the king's widow while she's crying on his grave. Claudius pretty much does the same when it comes to to Gertrude. I would also add that Basil Sidney adds an extra sliminess to this character. He makes him even more kind of disgusting as... I, it's just the way he plays the, the the manipulative side. It's so, so well done. I also love the shock on his face when he sees Gertrude drink from the poison goblet, like you were pointing out, Zan. And you and I think I agree with you. I think he genuinely cares for her. And he was yeah, that's worried. The only time he gives himself away is with Gert is with Gertrude. Yeah. And uh, so 
I mean, I'm gonna, I think, because it could go both ways. Either he's like, oh no, the woman that I love is about to kill herself, or he's the fact that, you know, it might throw, f- throw further suspicion on him if she drinks this and he and she dies. But I think it is definitely that he deeply loves Gertrude. And at the end of the day, the throne was a plus to him. It was all about getting the girl. And uh, and yeah, it was just, just such a fantastic, fantastic villain. Love this, love the, the, the portrayal. And, you know, you love to hate him. That's That's what Basil Sidney did. So let's get to how this film ended, because here, of course, everybody dies. Spoilers. And pretty much everybody's dead except for Horatio, I believe. And and he gets and we get to see, of course, Hamlet's corpse being carried out. And, you know, obviously little or no mention of Fortin Brass or the Norwegians are coming and what have you. Zan, were you happy with the way Olivier closed this film? Well, I think if he was going to leave something out, mm. the whole Fortinbras plotline would be what you would leave out. But I don't like it mm. because I feel like that imminent threat almost makes Claudius a more interesting character and a more desperate character. I... And the imminent threat on Hamlet makes you believe Hamlet's madness a little bit more. And with no Fortinbras character, there's no Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And that's who we're watching Hamlet for. (laughs) (laughs) Those are, those are, that's everybody's favorite in Hamlet is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So I, I don't like that. We didn't get those two. And, you know, without Ford and Bros, you don't, you don't get those two. And it's, it's like, it's like in Lord of the Rings, how there's no Tom Bombadil. It's like, you get it, but you're not happy about it. And and that's kind of how I feel about this. I think that the end, you know, aside from, aside from that whole thing of like, you know, hey, I'm dying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be king, and you know, I, before I die, I'm king. Tell Fortinbras he can have the throne. Blah blah blah. I mean, if you're going to leave that out, that's okay. And as for how he ended this, it was pretty faithful to the play. You know, everyone's dead. <laughs> Ratios left to essentially tell the story that we assume we just saw or read, and he was able to make a fairly decent film adaptation of this play in under three hours, which is very, very, very difficult to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, like I said, I don't like that the Fortinbras plotline was left out, but I get it. I totally get it. True. And Rachel, were you happy with uh, with how uh, Olivier handled the ending of this film? Yeah, because, you know, I... This is the only adaptation I've ever seen, besides The Lion King. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't know other than like a few Cliff Notes videos on YouTube that I've watched what's missing. Mm-hmm. So, since I don't really know what's missing, yeah, sure. You know, it's 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 one of it's not one of Shakespeare's funny ones, and therefore. It must be a tragedy, and therefore it ends with pretty much everybody dead. Is, is seemingly how he likes to end these. <laughs> it's just a pile of bodies. 
<laughs> at the end of it. So yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. It's it's Shakespeare at the end of the day. It's Shakespeare, and that's what I expect from Shakespeare. So. Mm, yes, I mean, uh, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, mean, I guess you know. First off, I guess kudos to Olivier definitely for keeping the the runtime really down, if you will, because if you obviously did the whole thing, you'd probably be looking at a three four hour film. And I'm I'm with you, Zan. I mean, I would have liked to have seen the Fort in Wrestling. And I'm granted, I'm also a big fan of political intrigue. In fact, I enjoy a lot of political intrigue TV shows and movies and all those kind of things. So I would have liked. You know, the whole kind of thing between Norway and Denmark to be played into more. and But but I, I also see that maybe Olivier wanted, you know, said he, he was trying to cut corners to make it a Hollywood picture, if you will, and something that folks would possibly consider to be Oscar worthy. And so I, I see the decisions and all in all, I, I was I was happy with the ending. And yes, of course, as usual, if it's not like a happy, um, a happy Shakespearean uh, play, it's a tragedy and everybody's dead. And yeah, of course, like. Horatio, he has to pick up the pieces, and I, I definitely wonder what he's gonna do after this. But, uh, but it, it definitely, I would have loved to see like an epilogue of Horatio's story, and this is what he's gonna do. But yeah, I was, I was happy with it. So let's get to our, if we were the Academy segment. This film won Best Picture during the 21st Academy Awards, held at the Academy Theatre in Hollywood on March the 24th of 1949. Your host for the night was Robert Montgomery, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Ethel Barrymore. The film was running up against four other movies. We had, of course, Johnny Belinda, The Red Shoes, The Snake Pit, and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So, Rachel, when it comes to you, does Hamlet deserve the Oscar for Best Picture, or is it at least Oscar worthy? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, I, I guess it was at least worthy of the nomination because Olivier did find a very, very large and long and complicated story and figured out a way to adapt it for film that was not a slog for those that are into that guy. I still found it a slog, <laughs> but it's just not my thing. Um, so, yeah, I gotta give him kudos to that and for kind of breaking I mean we're 21 Oscar ceremonies in but this becomes the first uh, non you know Hollywood production to win best picture um, in this case first British film to mm -hmm. win um, and also makes it the first time that uh, uh director has directed themselves in an Oscar winning film. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, compared to what else was out there for 1948, um, we're starting to get into the uh, kind of the I don't want to say the big movie musicals but we kind of are yeah if you look at the other some of the other movies that came out that year like easter parade the pirate three musketeers two of those were gene kelly films thank you um <laughs> <clears throat> but i don't think any of those were necessarily oscar worthy um i was hoping to see the treasure of the sierra madre before we recorded this but my copy has not come in from the library yet Aww. um i know that's on the afi top 100 list 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it is fairly highly regarded, but until I watch it, I can't really say that maybe that deserves it. Although from what I understand about the plot, it's probably not going to be my favorite either. Um, we'll see. Um, so the only other movie I've seen is the red shoes, which I loved. I like mm. that way better than this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, uh, uh, nominee. Yeah, probably winner. No, I would give it to the red shoes. I like that so much better and had kind of a similar plot point, uh, plot to it where, True. you know, you've got, um, you know, this, this, you know, people in love with each other that aren't necessarily in love with others and people going slowly mad and, you know, people trying to figure out their place in the world and that sort of thing. So it's got a bit of a Shakespearean feel to it in a much more entertaining package. So, Yes, because it definitely has a few elements of a of a Midsummer Night's Dream. It has a little bit of uh, you know kind of the madness thing. So yes, I, I very much agree with you. And Zan, do you think that Hamlet deserves to win the Best Picture over its fellow nominees? No, I don't think it deserves <laughs> to win. And my my thoughts on this are a little bit complicated because you know as we said, you know everything Rachel said about the fact that this is the first time we have an Oscar winning or an Oscar nominated director directing himself in an Oscar nominated role for an Oscar nominated film. That's a pretty big deal. And Olivier does a fantastic job with this. But as I've said before, a lot of early cinema feels like somebody just put a camera in front of a play. And although Olivier does a pretty good job of keeping this fairly cinematic this is the type of story that has to be shot similarly to how you would just sit and film a play. For example, the scenes where you have the king and queen watching the play within a play. You have to see the king and queen and the play at the same time to watch the reactions. You have to see Hamlet and Horatio looking at the funeral of Ophelia. So you have to just have the camera in front of action in the foreground and action in the background. So it does really does still feel like you're watching somebody filming a play. And mm-hmm. it very much is a play. It, it is written with Shakespeare's language. It, it's written with Shakespeare's language. It is literally the most famous play in the history of drama and theater. So it's hard to get away from that. And although I think Olivier does a good adaptation of this that is a little bit more accessible it's shorter it's easier to watch it might be easier to understand he has great people in it he put on a good version of hamlet he didn't necessarily make a great movie and it is i mean it is i mean it's a it's a very good movie and he did a good job with a film adaptation of it but it's not like he made a great movie visually like any play, you get good yeah, actors. So he didn't do anything get... novel. Exactly. Oh, exactly. You know, I mean, not not trying to compare Olivier's Hamlet to Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> but at least there's something different there. At least we're looking at something. I mean, or or let's talk about West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Well, we will. 
We're, yes, <laughs> let's talk about it briefly before we talk about it a lot. West Side Story is a different take on a Romeo and Juliet story mm-hmm. where I feel like if I had seen Olivier's Hamlet in the theater and Olivier's Hamlet on screen, it would have been the same experience for me visually, emotionally, intellectually. So although he did a good adaptation of Hamlet and, a, and he he cut the things he needed to cut to make Hamlet accessible. Is it the best picture of the year? I don't think so. I think he deserves credit for his performance, doing a play on film that doesn't feel like you are just watching. I mean, it feels a lot like you are just watching one of those, you know, Broadway on YouTube. things. <laughs> but you know, you, you, you Hamilton. <laughs> right, right. You're you still really know you're watching a play, and I feel like if it could, if it was on stage or on film, it would have been the exact same experience. Unlike my pick for best picture, which is of course going to be the Red Shoes. Ah. It's so the Red the Red Shoes is so visually compelling. Just its use of color, its use of makeup, its use of costume, its use of art direction, its use of cinematography, and everything down to the skin tone and hair color of the actors, and the close-ups and the wonderful facial reactions that you have in the red shoes really makes it... I mean, The Snake Pit is a great movie. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a great movie as well. But The Red Shoes is just so unbelievably visually compelling that when we're talking about film as a visual medium, The Red Shoe just hits every mark perfectly. Mm. So does Olivier deserve some credit? Sure. Is this the best picture of that year? Not at all. Well, it looks like uh, we were pretty much all in agreement because I would probably have given it to the Red Shoes as well because I I really enjoy the the treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, it's always great fun watching it. But, you know, if we're going to be giving this to something that maybe is innovative or visually arresting, then yes, of these five the the red shoes does the best job when it comes to that and yeah it's true because i mean kudos to olivier for what he did but but as as even rachel was pointing out he didn't actually do anything you know over the top or innovative you know it wasn't like he zigfielded the the whole thing if you will and kind of made it into this kind of grandiose kind of thing which could have been you know maybe the the first kind of epic of its time you know when we go to look at films like ben-hur for example and you know we'll definitely have to have the, the riff lot to talk about when it comes to those kind of movies which then became a, a thing during that period but I enjoyed it and it did actually make me go and listen to other versions and watch other versions of Shakespearean things. I actually went on kind of a Shakespearean uh, kind of rediscovery after a while, went to watch other versions of Macbeth and Hamlet and The Tempest and stuff. So it, it did give me that. But uh, all in all, I think the Red Shoes kind of kind of should have won this one. Sorry, Olivier. I mean, did a great job. But yeah, the Red Shoes definitely had that extra something. So let's get to the ratings. Well, Zan, what do you give Hamlet out of 10? Um, this is more indicative of this version than the performances in the direction. But I'm going to give this one a six. Hmm. And I'm giving it a six because, first of all, Hamlet's not my favorite thing in the world. This is not a bad play. This is absolutely not a bad play. I just hate everybody in it. <laughs> <laughs> so Hamlet 
is is only about half enjoyable for me when I watch it because like I said the entire time I'm watching it I'm just like you're such a little bitch <laughs> and so I so some of this rating is so most of my rating is very pers- personal this is a this is a good play this is a decent film adaptation Olivier is great but at the same time I really sort of feel like this is Olivier saying, I want the whole damn world to watch me play Hamlet, bitches. <laughs> and that feels like kind of what he did. I mean, I feel like he wanted to be known as Hamlet to the entire world. And it's a little self-serving, I think, in that way. Especially because, like, like we said before, dyeing your hair blonde does not make you look like a 19-year-old, okay? <laughs> so. That was like the worst hair ever. <laughs> and we were, we were watching it, and Chris is like, "He looks like Sting in this movie." <laughs> so, and he's not wrong. I mean, he's not wrong. So, so there, there's, there's that. And I really think that when you leave Rosencrantz and Guildenstern out of Hamlet, you leave a lot of the, 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 the you know, the, the heart and soul out of this play. <laughs> I mean, everybody. <laughs> Everybody loves Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and you just cut them out. It's ridiculous. Like I said, I get it, but I don't like it. So I think when it comes to film adaptations of Hamlet, we... I think a lot of them seem, or a lot of the ones we know are, you know, there is one that was made for German television with, with Maximilian Schell, you know, Hamlet's a tough one. Hamlet is so depressing. Everybody's everybody's a horrible person. And when you're going to try and do it justice, it can wind up seeming very self-serving. This one is no exception. But the one that takes that to the absolute nth degree is the Kenneth Branagh. I think Kenneth Branagh said to himself, screw Lawrence Olivier. I want the world to know that I am Hamlet. <laughs> and he made the most pompous, self-serving four and a half hours of ego that I've ever seen on film. <laughs> and, uh, you know, unfortunately that, that comes across a little bit in this one for me. So if you're, if you're going to watch Hamlet, this is, you're going to get good performances out of this one. You are not going to see all of Hamlet. So don't like try and watch this movie to get out of reading it for a, for a quiz or a paper that you have to write, because there's a lot of it missing. Do you want to see a good Olivier performance? Absolutely. Do you want to watch a Peter Cushing movie? Absolutely. <laughs> I think you probably should see this one, but I don't think this is going to be one that you're going to want, want to watch like multiple times. Like if I see, if I'm flipping channels one afternoon and this is on Turner Classic Movies, I'll be like, uh, what else is on? <laughs> <laughs> yes or flip on one of the on-demand uh on-demand channels i suppose and i'm gonna now- i'm gonna go to hbo max tcm hub and watch the red shoes <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> but like i said you know i i i am admitting up front that my rating is very personal but and then there's nothing wrong with that because after all you know a a movie like any art form is also very subjective and so of course you know if you are entertained or not so it will it definitely i mean that's that's more than fair zan and now i'm gonna actually go and look for a uh, a hamlet trailer of this and actually put uh, every breath you take underneath it and just mute the sound do it (laughs) 
<laughs> I think you actually work. <laughs> Rachel, you know, already Zan set the bar very low. So when it comes to our Scarlet Witch of the Gold Standard Theatre, what do you what do you give this film? Uh, Scarlet Witch, I may go Agatha on this. Um, <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it, it's hard to score this as its own thing because of how much I just dislike Shakespeare. <laughs> and this um, is not its own thing. This is obviously material that probably most people who saw it are at least semi-familiar with because everybody went to yeah. junior high, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, goodness. It's, it's, it, it's very funny because we... <laughs> Because <laughs> we, uh, uh, the Five Fish Fangirls, we just did uh, our names from a hat, and Catherine Tate was one of the ones we pulled, mm, yep. and that got us talking about the uh, the Red Those Day special she did with David Tennant, where she's her her schoolgirl uh, <laughs> character. Am I not bummered? <laughs> yes, am I not bummered? But like David Tennant's her, 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 yeah, her English teacher and. He's a like, you're a pointless, repetitious, and extremely dull. And her response is a bit like Shakespeare. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate that that should come up at the same time. I have, I have to watch something. Yeah, <laughs> Shakespeare. It's exactly how I feel about it. Um, so, yeah, the fact that this, if, if he had done something besides just take pure Shakespeare and put it on film, even with the cutting of characters and a lot of dialogue and the whole political subplot, secondary plot, whatever you want to call it. Um, this really just is a play on film and not much of anything else. It's not really that special. Um, so in my mind uh, that hurts it more uh, than the fact that I just don't like Shakespeare. Um, you know, I just, I just, I just found it boring, hard. To, I followed the overall plot. I just could not understand characters' choices. <laughs> <laughs> and why they made some of the choices they did and that had me muttering under my breath quite a bit um, for a good chunk of the two and a half hours and I just I did not like this whether it's Shakespeare or not I just I just did not like this so I'm gonna give this like a four <laughs> <laughs> okay Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier, you may be, you're supposed to be one of the greatest actors of all time. This is not it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet, still better than How Green Was My Valley. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, hey, I guess the Scarlet Witch has spoken. I'm actually going to give this a, I'm going to come to Olivier's rescue here. I'm actually going to give this a seven and a half out of ten because I am a big fan of Shakespeare and I do enjoy Shakespeare in 
pretty much all different versions and sources and what have you. So it was good. I, I didn't sort of feel the runtime and, you know, granted, okay, I now I, I can't stop thinking of Olivier as Sting. That's Thank you for that, Zan. Or rather, <laughs> should I say thank you to Chris for that. Thank brilliant, Chris for that one. <laughs> for, that brain, for that brainwave. But um, other than that, I, I give it a seven and a half because I enjoyed it and it did make me want to go back and revisit all the Shakespeare stuff that I had enjoyed. I actually went on to listen to the Lamb's Tales uh, audiobook, which is which I really enjoyed. So I'll definitely give it that. So it's seven and a half out of ten for me. So we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you find listeners out there wish to join us on one of our discussions or simply share your feedback about the podcast or films in writing, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. That's goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter where you can find us as Oscars Gold or on Facebook where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys and we also appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you'd like to show your support for the podcast and have us review your favorite film nominee or your favorite film which you feel deserve to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can do so by joining our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Other than picking, of course, your favorite outside or nominee, you'll also be able to unlock and enjoy previous reviews we've done, such as Notorious, Star Wars, Singing in the Rain, and more that's uh, patreon.com slash gold standard oscars so let's get to shameless self-promotion outside this podcast rachel when you're not here in the gold standard theater where can folks find you um you can find me with the five-ish fangirls podcast we are a weekly pop culture geek culture entertainment podcast where we talk about books movies video games all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective and be found pretty much wherever you find podcasts and at the fiveishfangirls.com where you can connect with uh, all of our social medias and my personal ones as well. Fantastic. And Zan, what about you? Well, I can be heard discussing movies while imbibing my favorite adult beverages with Charles Skaggs on Drunk Cinema. Charles and I are also very verbose when it comes to talking about all things tangentially related to Twin Peaks and David Lynch on Ghost with the Twin Peaks podcast and I am on Twitter and Instagram as Udenites19. Fantastic and actually speaking of Charles Skaggs he has officially defined drunk cinema as the gold standard after party and I love that definition. I think it's it totally it totally is you know we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do the movies that were ignored by the Oscars as we drink it's great. Yes. So I think he he definitely nailed that description. When it comes to me, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show where we play traditional country, today's country, and everything else in between. For more about that and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I do also host Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we discuss all superhero movies under the sun. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, you can shoot me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We're on social media facebook twitter and the instagram and speaking of charles skaggs uh, recently him and i have teamed up on the fandom zone where we're going through that wonderful mcu show which is the falcon and the winter soldier and having a great time discussing that and speaking of things to come on this show next time we'll be discussing the 1949 robert rosson film all the king's men well, Rachel and Zan, as always, I had a blast. It was really a great time, as always, talking to you both and discussing this film. And when it comes to All the King's Men, will this? do you have any uh, 
hot takes or thoughts on this film? Have you have you seen this one already? I have. I have. Okay, cool. I have not yeah. seen this, but I it's do. Been know a while. Probably no. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but I do know there are no eggs in this movie, so it's completely <laughs> different than what I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I've I've got, it has been a while since I watched it, so I I do need to watch it again. Um, it will be interesting to watch this this particular movie post Trump era. Mm-hmm. Because the last time I watched it was while he was still in office. <laughs> so uh, it will be interesting to see Too how scary. that colors colors my uh, my uh, perception of some of the choices that some of these, big, especially the main character makes. Um mm in this movie if I because I did not like him <laughs> the last time so we'll see if I'm more sympathetic this time. even though his last name is Stark yeah there's only so much you can do sorry <laughs> and so Zan this will be a, a first time watching all the King's Men then yes this is my this will be my first time well, it, it's definitely going to be an interesting one. Yes, as, as Rachel was saying, seeing the political climate you know, the, that the, the U.S. did go through recently, and I guess kind of over here in, in Europe as well when it came to the populism and certain kind of sovereignist characters. So it will definitely be, uh, be an interesting chat for sure. That said, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with All the King's Men. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people. I know that your powers of retention are as wet as a warthog's backside. But thick as you are, pay attention. My words are a matter of pride. It's clear from your vacant expression. The lights are not all on upstairs. But we are talking kings and successions. Even you can't be caught unaware. So prepare for the chance of a lifetime Be prepared for sensational news A shining new era is tiptoeing nearer And where do we feature? Just listen to teacher I know it sounds sordid But you'll be rewarded When at last I am given my dues And in 